Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. I just want to give a quick thanks to Euro Classics for sponsoring this episode. Your Classics is all about collector cars, from servicing your new BMW M5 to prepping your Porsche for the racetrack to executing a total restoration on your favorite classic. They do it all from routine maintenance to performance upgrades to appraisals and everything in between. You can learn more about its owner, Dale Oaks, by listening to episode number 65 of this podcast. And you can find Euro Classics in the Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana service area and online at euroclassics.com. Classics, C-L-A-S-S-I-X dot com. This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Welcome to the Collector Car Podcast. Hey, it's Greg. I got a special guest today, RM Sotheby's president, Kenneth Ahn. Ken, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you, Greg. How are you? I'm doing great. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. I wanted to have you on because, as you know, it's been totally crazy in the collector car marketplace over the last six, seven months now since COVID. And I know you've put in some really kind of deep dives, analytics on what you see out there in the marketplace and I wanted to see if you could just kind of give us an overview from your perspective of the collector car marketplace as you see it today. Sure. First of all, thanks for having me on. I'd be happy to share some perspectives. Obviously, it's been a very interesting time. You know, I've only been with RM since 2016, and I'd say each one of the years have been very uh, interesting for different reasons. But this one in particular, I have to admit, we didn't see it coming around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Clearly, the classic car auction market is driven based on events, especially, you know, our business for the last several decades have been really optimized around uh, holding auction events uh, in major Concord Elegance or other important car events throughout the world. You know, up until March, you know, through Amelia Island, we were fine holding those events and everything was going uh, as planned, if you will. And, you know, right after Amelia Island, news and the developments that were happening, particularly on the U.S. side, were changing so rapidly that, we had to think very quickly, and you know, it's it's been amazingly interesting and difficult times for uh, all of us, but also an opportunity for us. I, I would say, you know, to as a punchline, the market has clearly been impacted not because the values have changed much, but because the ability to hold live auctions have gone down quite a bit. Right. Yeah, and I know some of the recaps you've done, or some of the information I've seen, it was more about the number of cars that have been sold has gone down. So the sheer supply has gone down out there. But the actual data, the average value of the car, or whether it's the sell-through rates, those have been fairly consistent, haven't they? Yeah, you know, uh, one data point that I was looking at since we're in October now was, and the shutdowns really started happening in early March for us, that we looked at the last six months, so the six months during COVID shutdown versus the six months leading up to it. So from last September through this March. And the data points something very interesting. You know, for us at least, we offered 1,400 cars roughly between September and March. And since the COVID shutdowns in the last six months, we offered 946 cars. So clearly the volume has gone down a little bit, 
but uh, we were able to make that up just by doing all online. Those were uh, online sales. And, you know, uh, Palm Beach is a very interesting one for us and a memorable one, I think, for the RM team because we had just concluded the Amelia Island sale, which was very successful, very highly attended, you know, exceptional sell-through rates and the values achieved. And we came back from that weekend, and all of the news started to come out. You know, I remember walking around uh, the Concord, the Elegance at Amelia Island, thinking, what COVID? <laughs> the, <laughs> right. You know, if you, if you were there, you wouldn't be able to tell. But, you know, when we came back to uh, our offices the following week and started to see all the developments and news, you know, it was daunting. And we had our Palm Beach sale scheduled just the following week. So I guess it would be two weeks from the conclusion of Amelia Island. And as we were sitting there in our office on Wednesday, our team and the operations guys were setting up the tents, and the tents were going up on Wednesday in, uh, in Palm Beach International uh, Raceway. And, you know, we had to make a decision very quickly, thinking that are we going to be able to hold a physical auction where we expect hundreds of people to come and gather? And we already had all of the cars consigned that were either in route or already arrived in uh, Palm Beach. And so the decision we made at the time was to convert everything to online. You know, at the time we thought if we can get half of our consigners to roll the dice with us, if you will, and that would be an incredibly successful sale. You know, I think at the time they thought that there weren't many other alternatives either as, as the shutdowns were happening throughout the country. And they thought, why not try for it? And the results are spectacular. But what we learned from that and the sales from that point on was a very interesting fact, which was the fact that people were, our clients were equally comfortable, it seemed to us, purchasing cars completely sight unseen versus going to the auction sites and physically inspecting the cars. Now, in order to do that, we, you know, tried to think about what are the things that we can do for our clients and if they were not on site, what would we typically walk them through? And we created a condition report template and we provided those in addition to a significantly higher number of images and documents all available online. But the one data point that's very interesting is that during the six months leading up to COVID shutdowns for us, our average value per car sold was $151,000. Right. From Palm Beach on through, through September, our average value of cars we sold online only without physical events was $148,000, only $3,000 off. To me, that's a very interesting statistic that people are comfortable paying just as much um, for cars that they cannot see. Yeah, it's really amazing because I know you kind of talked about nobody flips a switch in moving a live auction to an online auction. I mean, I've seen it in numerous of the automobile magazines how that was such a massive effort for everybody in 10 days, right? Can you talk to a little bit about all the work that went into flipping the switch, so to speak? Sure. You know, I guess going stepping back, in 2019, I had shared with our team that one of the future growth opportunities for us would be digital auctions. And we had started to leverage third-party platforms, develop our own, and started to work with Sotheby's and I would say pilot tests so that we can learn as we go. And so, you know, in Q4 of 2019, we had done a handful of online-only auctions. And certainly once January, February, and March kicked in, we were so focused on executing our physical auctions that, um, you know, I would say on a relative basis, it was getting a lot less attention. But we had sort of a, I would characterize as a a strong beta test that had happened uh, up until that point. And that's what enabled us to have the courage to say, you know what, Uh, it's not ready for prime time, but we have no option 
at the time, you know, the decision was much harder for us because we didn't know how long this was going to go for. Our operating model, you know, when we think about executing our auction, it's not uh, as simple as just uh, having an auction year sell the car. You know, our operations, our client services, our administration team, our research team, even on-site execution, everything has been optimized uh, for physical auctions. And so we sort of had to think about it with a clean sheet of paper, almost flip our business model upside down within a period of 10 days and say, okay, here's the situation, here's the cards we have, here's the platform that we had built, not quite ready for prime time, but what needs to get done between now and end of next week to execute the sale. And from that point on, I think we were working literally around the clock to execute this. And, you know, I think looking back, it was absolutely the right decision. We had learned a ton from that experience and the post-sale experience. And, and, you know, I think with every sale that we do, we learn uh, from our mistakes or areas that needs to be improved, and uh, we continue to improve and change. Now it's almost like you forget how to do your physical auctions <laughs> as, as, as we've <laughs> retrained ourselves over the last six months. Are there learnings from the competition that you've seen out there, like someone kind of trying to cut it a different way that you find interesting? I would say there have been a handful of uh, pure play digital players that's been out there and with a great success, albeit started at a smaller scale. They're continuing to grow. And, you know, we were coming at it from a different perspective, sort of top-down physical versus, you know, in terms of the market and versus sort of the entry level of the market and digital. And that makes complete sense. But, you know, when you decide to flip the switch, I guess there's a bit of a free riding where you, you look at what others are doing currently and trying to figure out what are the things that we want to adopt and what are the things that we want to try to do better. And... I think we were the first ones of the major physical auction houses to convert to online and do so successfully uh, over the last six months. Uh, and with that, I think we sort of created a benchmark for other players to look at ours and say, you know, that's worked well for RM and that probably hasn't worked well for RM or here's some areas that we can develop. And so, you know, it's, uh, I, I would say in this day and age, information flow as well as benchmarking and you know, to a certain degree free riding, but also to think about creative ways to continue to improve, it's created a whole new competitive dynamics. And, you know, I, I think uh, everyone's catching up very, very quickly. Yeah, that's true. And I did want to point out that the average car was $148,000, but there were some big hitters in there. We had a couple $2 million Ferraris, correct? And even a record-setting $4 million Ferrari, correct, on one of our sales? Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I'll i never forget that sale in May when uh, – we sold a 288 GTO, uh, which sold for $2.3 million. And, you know, at the time, based on our information that we have, that was the highest price uh, achieved for a car sold at an online-only auction without you know, physical presence. And, you know, we thought that was very exciting. And then just a couple hours later, that record was broken by selling a 2003 Ferrari Enzo for $2.6 million, $2.64 to be exact. And... Uh, Again, that was all sight unseen based on photos and conversations with their car specialists. Obviously, they had to put a lot of effort in making sure that they described the cars correctly, et cetera. Um, and then most recently in August, we had, uh, in lieu of our traditional Monterey auction, which is by far the biggest auction that we hold in a calendar year, we did a what we called a Shift Monterey, which was an online-only sale. And, and in that sale, we sold a 2001 Ferrari 550 GT1 uh, ProDrive for 4.5. 
$2.9 million, which, uh, which holds the record today. Wow, that's amazing. Now, can you speak to a little bit about the, I don't know, generational shift you're seeing, some of the trends you're seeing in the marketplace that you can see in the results at the auction? Yeah, I think one thing, well, a couple things that stuck out. One was obviously the value that we discussed. The second thing is the average age of the buyers at our auction over the last six months is lower by almost 10 years, 9.3 wow. to be exact, versus <laughs> the last year. And so I think, um, I think that also goes hand-in-hand hand with the fact that we had this year so far an online platform, 40% of the buyers, uh, the ultimate buyers, were brand new to us. We've never interacted in the past. And so I think when you're looking at the fact that it's digitally driven, uh, which obviously broadens the geographic scope and arguably also changes the demographics. You know, the 40% of the new buyers who came to us, I think, are ultimately the ones that drove down the average age. What have the results been when you look at your international buyers? Has that increased as well? Yeah, I think overall the U.S. sales have certainly seen a lot more international participants. Uh, I think our European sales tend to be uh, quite international to begin with, but on the U.S. side, uh, we had a lot more international participants and from more countries. In fact, uh, several countries uh, where we didn't realize that there were collectors who were buying from us. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Wow, that's really cool. Well, I do want to dig into your passion for cars here in a second. But before I do, I wanted to find out, could you give us kind of what you see in the future for 2021 as it relates to the collector car market and then specifically for RM Sotheby's? Yeah, here's what I would say, Greg, about the collector car market. You know, one man's view. The collector car market has shown that it is a cyclical market in any given period of short period of time. But over time, it's shown a very strong secular growth, you know, a multi-decade growth uh, that's uh, significantly outpaced the, uh, the global economy. And, you know, I think there's always this argument that it's different this time. You know, when you think about collector cars, in the 70s, it was the oil prices. In the 80s, it was interest rates and inflation. In the 90s, it was, you know, Japan or the, the slowdown from Japanese collectors. And all these various reasons for, you know, when we think about those decades, were all touted as headwinds and, and future looks bleak for, for collector cars. But, you know, I think outside the collecting the collector car world, I've learned over the years that, you know, uh, the concept of mean reversion trumps it's different this time sort of mentality most of the time and over time. And I don't think classic cars are any different. You know, despite how people talk about it's different this time because of online, it's different this time because of electric cars, autonomous driving, different regulations, I think when you take a step back, the core of what I believe drives the collector car market and the classic car market is really the passion and the desire to own a piece of automotive history. You know, I think it touches various aspects of our emotion, you know, human emotions, the joy of collecting and owning cars, the joy of driving or racing cars, the joy of having money uh, in a, invested in a tangible asset that hopefully appreciates over time, the, the joy of just looking at a car in your garage or your driveway. I mean, this weekend, I actually had my uh, 2000 Mercedes E55 and 2002 G500 lined up side to side in my driveway and just admired it and looked at it while I was smoking a <laughs> cigar. Right, uh, right. You know, there's something that as long as these cars touch, you know, human emotions and they, they drive our passion, I think they will be important. You know, it's no different than art, watches, wine, or other things which all appeal to different 
you know, aspects of human emotions. And so um, I think the collector car and the passion will continue. It'll continue to evolve. I think where we're going to see probably more change is the speed of speed and depth of information flow, right, and the channel mm-hmm. through you which transact. I mean, you know, I was trying to talk to my friend the other day. Think about the stockbrokers in the 1980s. You know, you, you see those Wall Street images of all the guys in the shirts and ties on their phones. And, and then you think about the traders in the trading pits. In fact, my college roommate was a trader in the trading pit in, uh, in the New York Stock Exchange in the 2000s, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, those... Those those have those functions have really evolved, right? And technology has changed the way that works. But as a result of it, the speed and the access of information has grown exponentially. I'd also argue that the ease uh, of transaction and cost of doing transaction has also improved exponentially. And I, I think that we're seeing that starting to happen in the collecting car collector car world. I mean, nowadays. You know, you look up a VIN number, you Google a VIN number, or look up some of the auction results, you can pull a lot more information about a car um, than, you know, a, a collector was able to do 10, 20 years ago. And I think that will continue to create uh, more information, smarter sort of price discovery, and, uh, and a smarter collector base. And so, you know, I, I don't know exactly how that's going to evolve, but uh, I, I do know that, you know, my, my bet would be that, you know, as much as technology has rapidly changed the way collector cars have traded hands over the last 10 years, I'm certain that that will change much faster in the next 10 years. Right. And how do you see 2021? Is it back to the same old live auctions? Is it a hybrid? Is it unknown at this point? Yeah, boy, I wish I had that crystal ball. (laughs) (laughs) Greg, I would say this. Um, You know, I think, you know, when we had our live auction in Auburn Fall, and you were there, and and, um, you know, when you talk to your clients and collectors and, frankly, just our staff, too, uh, everyone's dying to go to travel and go to these events again. You know, go, it's about socializing. It's about seeing and smelling and hearing the different cars. And, and that's just, you know, obviously being challenged. So I would say in 2021, hopefully, you know, with vaccine and, and other measures that there'll be, a, you know, I, I would think that there'd be gradual coming back of all these events. And, that would create a very interesting uh, scenario for us, which, you know, this is probably one thing that keeps me up at night, which is we had done this uh, sort of metamorphosis or, you know, severe pivoting from uh, pure sort of bricks and mortar live events to online over the last six months. But, you know, our core business and, and the high end of the market and the collectors are really uh, driven by live events. And so, one of the things that we're spending a lot of time on right now, for which I have no crystal ball or clear answer, but what we're trying to figure out is what happens as things come back and where are we going to be focused. And I think the answer for us, at least for RM, would be a hybrid one. I think there's significant opportunity on the digital side of things. In fact, I'd argue that the saying that never waste a good crisis, I think for the the fact that we wanted to try to advance our digital auction business, this probably accelerated by two or three years. On the flip side, our core business and uh, where we drive our commercial outcome as well as all the relationship has always been on the major events. And so part of the uh, job and part of my where I spend most of my time today is thinking about 
our plans for next year and what I am planning for is both coming back. Right. And actually, if you would speak to Auburn for a little bit, that was our first live in-person event post-COVID, you know, during all this. Did you see it as successful and why? Yeah, I I thought it was uh, very successful. It depends on what metrics you're looking at. You know, Auburn has, you know, tens of thousands. I mean, I think I think we get something like thirty to 40,000 people in attendance during, during that week uh, in normal years. This year, we had about 1,200 to maybe 1,500. And so it's a significantly scaled down auction. And uh, also, the overall environment was quite subdued. But Part of that was because it was it was by design. We had limited attendees only to registered bidders, uh, no other you know no other sort of general admissions, but only uh, registered bidders and their guests. And we have we had removed as as a cautionary measure a lot of the uh, sort of social aspect of it, whether that's car corral or food vendors or swap meet that uh, have been there for. You know, in fact, this year was the 50th anniversary, so it's been there for a long time. But I think first and foremost was the concern for health for our clients as well as our staff. And so we had significantly reduced attendance and traffic. But considering that, the amount of remote bidding, bidding and online bidding more than compensated for that, where the results uh, of the sale was actually, for us, it was about 40% higher than we, we thought we were going to achieve in Auburn. It was it was tremendous. In fact, beginning of the auction, I actually had to ask to swap out our operator for digital uh, sort of internet bidding because there were just so much bidding coming in that the, the person was just not able to handle the volume. Never seen that kind of volume before. In fact, uh, Auburn, Greg, was interesting because it was the overall results were good. The major collection consigners were very happy. But the what was really surprising to me was the you know close to 40% of total purchases by value were done online. <laughs> and wow. and okay. that was something that, you know, I think it was up something like 3,000% from the last year, right? So <laughs> it's just, just interesting to see. And that, I think that was an interesting hybrid model in the works, right? You had a lot of people that were there bidding in person, but you also had a lot of people who were uh, bidding remotely. Well, so what's next for RM Sotheby's? What's on the calendar? We have a couple of sales coming up. The next big sale for us is in Elkhart, Indiana, the Elkhart Collection. Due to COVID, we had uh, extended and delayed that several times, but time has finally come, and we'll run it very much like we did with Auburn Fall. Uh, and then the following that in November, we'll have our London sale, which at the moment, given the most recent announcements by the U.K. government, it looks like that'll be a digital-only auction again. So, again, an example of us going back and forth and, and running both models. Well, I appreciate you giving us an overview of the kind of the state of the industry as you see it, as well as a peek into 2021. And like I said earlier, I would like to know more about your passion for cars. Now, if I got this correct, you're a former Harvard football player from the consulting world that's now president of a auction house. How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes life just happens serendipitously. I could not have planned for it. <laughs> um, so let me take a step back. My passion for cars started when I was probably around five years old. I, I literally tried to put my hands on every uh, little mini cars that I could get my hand on and try to memorize the names and the year making models, right, and and try to identify them. And so, you know, I, my passion was for cars was, I would say, very different than sort of my my friends and cousins. I immigrated to the U.S. in 92. And, wow. you know, when I came to the you know, prior to coming to the U.S., all my passion for cars were cars that I saw on photos and books and mini cars. But I hardly saw any of them because uh, I grew up in Korea where, 
you know, it's a small country, the land of particularly small Hyundais, they was in Kias, right? <laughs> no muscle cars. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> no muscle cars. Uh, so when I came to the U.S., I mean, that was, to me, that I was a kid in the candy store from, from that perspective, right? I, I mean, I, I was so excited by the fact that I couldn't identify 95% of the cars on the road. <laughs> and and uh, so that's, that's sort of going back to how my uh, car passion started. And I guess growing up, uh, you know, and, and through college, you know, I've always, I've spent most of my time, I think I've subscribed to every car ma- major car magazine. My college roommates or friends would say that I was the car nut. Uh, I mean, I'm the guy that's constantly looking at other cars driving the, down on a road trip, right? But I never would have imagined, you know, I, I was a management consultant after college. Then I went back to business school for my uh, MBA degree. And then I worked as an investment banker uh, focused on M&A on Wall Street. And, you know, totally by fluke, um, when I decided that, you know, I never, I didn't want to be a banker anymore once I grew up. <laughs> um, the, you know, the, one of the partners that I'd worked uh, at the investment bank became the chief financial officer of Sotheby's. And so, uh, you know, I, I was not planning on changing my career and moving into Sotheby's. In fact, when I left Wall Street, I wanted to take a year off and try to figure out what I wanted to do and, and actually bought a car at that time to try to, you know, one of my, my favorite cars to to drive, and I thought I'd enjoy for a little bit and take a little break, and uh, next thing I know, I met with the management of Sotheby's, and I told them I had no idea, I, I, didn't, I didn't know anything about art or auctions, and they said it was perfect, <laughs> <laughs> um, and totally serendipitously, one of the first projects, in fact, the very first project that uh, landed on my lap, in fact, the weekend before I started at Sotheby's, I got a brown UPS box delivered to my doorstep on Saturday, and I thought it was a... Uh, you know, wine basket. Sotheby's has a nice wine retail shop on uh, York Avenue, and it was pretty heavy. I opened it up, and there were binders of this company called RM Auctions, and uh, <laughs> uh, that's how uh, I got to know RM and, and met with uh, Rob Myers, the founder of the company. And you know, I looked at it from a investor and a strategic partner standpoint. Even at that point, I had no idea that uh, I'd be at uh, RM and run the, running the business a few years down the road. Wow, that's really insane, and i got a ton of questions now. So what was that cool car you bought? So it was a 911. So it's actually a modern 991 Carrera 2S. And, you know, I, I've always wanted a Porsche 911. And this is funny because this was one of my bosses that growing up uh, the ranks on Wall Street, I, I always thought that I want to be like him one day. And he had this beautiful 997 uh, Carrera 2S before. And knowing how much I loved Porsche and particularly that color of that car, he had actually offered it to uh, for me to buy at the same price that he was going to get as a trade-in. Wow. Our first child, our son, was just born. He was literally one month old. Uh, we were still living in New York City. This was a manual two-seat. And if I sit in the front row, there's no way a child, child seat goes into the back. And uh, my wife uh, and I had long discussions, but ultimately agreed that it was impractical for us, so I passed. And he went ahead and traded that in and bought a 991 when it came out. Then after a couple of years, he decided that he wanted to part ways, and that's exactly when I was leaving Goldman. And I said, you know what, I, I'll buy it. <laughs> so that was, <laughs> that was the car I bought. I still have it today. Oh, wow. Yeah, it sounds like you don't let cars go. Speaking of which, could you tell our <laughs> listeners about your little, I think it's a Mercedes that's in the warehouse there at Auburn? Yeah, it's actually a 95 Mercedes-Benz E320 sedan. For Mercedes follower, it's 
uh, W124 chassis, arguably the most successful <laughs> chassis for Mercedes, which means that collectability is super low. <laughs> it was the it was the last year, so it was '95, and you know I, I mentioned to you that uh, you know I came from Korea in middle school, and I think when I look back at my life, my passion for cars really started with my dad. I mean, he was. He, he loved cars. And just to give you a sense, we would go on a West Coast road trip for two weeks, let's say, and we'd come home, and literally as we're unloading the car, my dad would kiss the hood of the car. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I was, you know, I was a young kid, and he would say, you know, uh, the car is just like people. You, 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 it eats, you know, it consumes energy, uh, it breathes air. It actually passes there, <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, it's that if you treat them well, that you know they'll love you back. And I'll never forget that when I was you know young. So my dad had well, so coming from Korea, he always aspired to have a Mercedes Benz. Um, I think some of it's cultural, probably, but Mercedes, uh, in his mind and many of his friends' minds, were the pinnacle of automobiles. And so this was the first Mercedes he ever bought, and. Back in uh, 2003, so we had the car for almost eight years, 120,000 miles, uh, car sitting in our driveway. Our family's been using it for a long time. But at this point, post-college, and I'm working at a consulting firm, and I'm just about to get shipped out to, uh, to Asia. And my father says, you know, let's just sell this car. No one's using it. And I said, no problem. Put it on classifieds and, and sell to a guy who... Uh, is a very uh, also a car passionate guy, and he's had he has several Mercedes from 80s, 70s, and 90s, a uh, few Volkswagens as well. And in fact, his first car was a Volkswagen Beetle, and he still had that. Uh, and he came and he fell in love with the car and said that he really wanted it, and he bought it. That was 2003, and in 2004, I suddenly lost my father to cancer. And, mm. you know, I, I didn't think much of it. Life was difficult. I was just, you know, about to start business school. I postponed it for another year to help with family matters. And then, I, I, you know, I mentioned to you, I, you know, I got married in 2008 and had my son in 2009. And in 2009, right after my son was born, all of a sudden, and this was the depth of the recession, right? <laughs> Not the right. time to be thinking about cars, but I thought, man, wouldn't it be cool if my son can ride in his grandfather's car that he, he never met his grandfather. Mm, and it's also right. a car that was, for me, it was the first Mercedes and the last family sedan that my dad ever had. And so I had, you know, all of a sudden I got super excited and I started to look for this guy named Ron uh, who bought the car from us. And, you know, even with modern day, you know, Google searches and everything else, it was very difficult to find. And uh, I finally, some time after, found his contact information and contacted him. And lo and behold, he still had the car. In fact, when we sold it, it had 120,000, 125,000 miles on it. Fast forward 10 years, he still has 145,000 miles on it. So he's put on you know, 2,000 miles a year, effectively, uh, maybe 2,500 a year. And sent me photos, and it exactly has how we left it. And I got so excited. And over lunch, I sat down with my wife, and my mom happened to be there. And told him about this grand plan of buying my dad's old Mercedes back. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that, that went as far as a Scud missile getting hit by a Patriot missile. In fact, I, there, were, <laughs> there were two Patriot missiles in my wife and my mom <laughs> who looked at me and said, you, you're living in New York City, parking is $800 a month, you want to buy a 15-year-old Mercedes that's got six figures, 
mileage on it. It made no sense. And, you know, it's funny because to me it made perfect sense. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, it does to all car guys. <laughs> yeah. But ultimately, you know, I, I thought about it and I thought, you know, rationally it makes no sense. Emotionally it makes perfect sense, but rationally it doesn't. And I, and, and I, and I let it go. I called Ron again and I said, I'm really sorry that I went through all this, but, you know, it's just I can't do it. It's just not the right time. And from that point on, Greg, for three, four years, I thought about that car all the time. And mm. I, I felt like, oh, man, I, I wish I should have just bit the bullet and got it, put it in storage somewhere because there's only one car. I can't just go buy another 95 E320. It's that car. About three years later, he actually called me and said, you know, things have changed. Um, uh, and I've decided to pare down my collection and trade in a bunch of cars for a new pickup truck. And if you want the car, you know, let me know. And when I got that email, I happened to be working in Edmonton on a deal, and the plan was that I had to go through Seattle that weekend uh, on Friday to, to head back to New York. And so and it was almost fate. <laughs> I said, hey, I'm, <laughs> I'm going through Seattle. And he, he, lo and behold, he came and picked me up in the car. He's named the car Lily. And uh, uh, when he sold the car, his only condition was that I continue to call the car Lily and send him a photo once in a while. So... Uh, I still call her Lily, and she's sitting in uh, our Indiana uh, facility. That's a great story. That's an amazing story. So that was a car that was on your list for many years. Is there a dream car on your list right now? Oh, uh, boy. Um, <laughs> so many. But um, recently, <laughs> I, had a, I had a car that I've, I've, I wanted. And, you know, I, I don't know what it is. You know, different people have different angles for collecting. For me, whether it's my dad's car or my old boss's 911, I really like something about cars that were owned by people that I know or people who I admired. And again, this is a case of not any car, but the particular car. And the old boss that I had at Goldman, uh, Goldman Sachs and the one that was uh, CFO at Sotheby's, he happened to, when we were doing the RM deal, was very uh, interested in purchasing a Ferrari. And he ended up buying a 2007 599, for our, uh, 599 GTB. And mm. I remember getting all excited and, and looking for those cars with him. I think it was our Arizona sale or RM's Arizona sale. We were at Sotheby's at the time. And when we went to go visit, we went to a Ferrari dealership out in Scottsdale and, or Phoenix or Scottsdale and test drove one of them and looked at them. And I think, in fact, if I recall correctly, I think I found this particular car on my iPad on a flight with him that was sitting in Long Island. And he ended up uh, buying that car. That was going always my next car that I aspired. And as luck would have it, about two months ago, he decided to move and change things and sell the nine, uh, the 599. You know, it was a, one that I would, I would say there's never a good time to buy a car, <laughs> <I would say>. <laughs> <laughs> right. especially in this market. But I thought, you know what, there's only one time that that would come. So I, I guess I have my what was on my list of dream cars. I guess the next one will have to be something of Rob Myers, but I <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that would be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, what color is the car? It's uh, it's uh, Argento Nurburgring. So it's a, it's a silver uh, with a charcoal interior. Oh, that's a nice combo. Okay, cool. Well, awesome, man. Well, one thing I like to do at the end of this is to play a little game I call yeah. Keep Cash and Crush. Uh-huh. Uh, I did give you a heads up about this, but not what cars I'm picking, okay? Uh-oh. Yep, I think I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> well, I decided to pick three cars from the Elkhart collection. Oh, okay. Yeah, so there's, what, over 200 cars in the auction coming up in a couple yeah. of weeks? 
It's a very exciting sale. Yeah. Yeah. So I picked a few, and you've mentioned Mercedes a few times yep. uh, during our call. And the other two I picked you have not mentioned. So I don't. I hope it's not a clear winner here. But uh, let's see. The first car is that Mercedes 1953 300S Roadster Custom. Mm-hmm. Now this is, uh, I think, what was it, like a light yellow with a green interior, and it has the aftermarket engine. So it's really made for, or, or an updated engine, right? Uh, ironically, that has the M104 engine, which is the same engine that's in my dad's Mercedes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad. So. <laughs> All right. The next one is the 64 Aston Martin DB5, a beautiful okay. blue color. And then the third one is a little bit of a curveball, is a 57 Jaguar XKSS continuation car. Oh. So you've got the 53 Mercedes, the 64 Aston Martin, the 57 Jag. Which one would you keep forever? Which one would you cash in? And which one would you send to the crusher? Oof. Keep cash or crush. <laughs> Let me give it a little bit of thought here. Um, okay. Oh, well, it's, it's tough. Um, let's start with the crush because I think I can probably eliminate the one that I would like to have the least. Um, for me personally, I think the 53, uh, the uh, 300S Roadster Custom, as much as I love Mercedes and it's a great looking car, you know, if I, for me personally, if I own a car of that vintage and that, that, you know, that particular car, I think I would probably want the old original engine or the right type of it. And now that's not to say that I can't go and do that, but I would say (laughs) of the three, that's probably the (laughs) least that I would, I I would probably crush that one. That's surprising because I, uh, I just thought Mercedes, you said Mercedes like three times prior. So that's impressive. Okay. So that's the crush. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's uh, trust me. It's not easy. Um, Oh boy. You know, I would say, well, the the part of the challenge, Greg, is that I'm also a big guy. So some of these cars, I got to test drive and make sure I can drive them if I want to keep them. <laughs> but make sure you I w- fit in them. Yeah. Yeah, I would say this. I would say I would cash in on the XKSS continuation car, and okay. I would keep the DB5. It's a tough one. Uh, XKSS, beautiful car. You know, I think uh, oof, it's tough because that's also road going, right? And mm. there's, uh, but. I'd say, you know, it's probably a personal taste. I think if I had an original XKSS and then have this one as my uh, sort of rally car or race car, I think that would be amazing. But if I only had one XKSS, I'd probably, if I could afford it, <laughs> uh, could have the original, not the not the uh, continuation from uh, Jack Classic. So I think the values, and there's certainly a market for it. I think it's a beautiful car. I think... As I mentioned, there are probably collectors who own XKSS who would uh, own a continuation, or there may be others who would prefer that, especially at the prices that these have relative to the original ones. So I think I think that would bring good value. So I would say I would cash that, and then I'd keep the DB5. I think that's okay. a, that's a very original car and uh, looks amazing. At least uh, I haven't looked at it closely in person, but the color and just the, the configuration, the Something about right-hand drive also. I, I never had a right-hand drive or driven a right-hand drive in a manual format before, to be honest. But uh, that one intrigues me. Okay. No, that's fair. Okay, so you're going to keep the Aston Martin. You're going to cash in the Jag, which was which does have the highest estimate. So financially, it that sure was does. the best decision. Yeah. And then the unoriginal Mercedes is the one you're going to crush. Yeah, and I'll pocket that money to buy my old boss, other old boss's cars. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> there you go. Just keep on buying them. Keep on buying yeah. them. Well, I, I, th- I think I've regretted every car that I bought for collecting purposes that I've sold. <laughs> There's a regretted lesson there somewhere. Thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thanks so much for your time today, Ken. All right. Thanks for your time, Greg. This is great. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.